are entering the takedown, place together when the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and as always, I'm here with my co-host and the managing editor of thetakeup.com, Andrew Wyatt. Hello, hello, Andrew. Hello. <laughs> it isn't Halloween, but today we are processing something kind of spooky. Andrew's pick for the first in our Gems of 2023 series, They Clone Tyrone. First, we're going to talk now showing. After, we have some suggestions for the Academy. Finally, we'll have one more thing. Wait. Wait a second. Andrew, Mm -hmm. wait a second. I don't think we have enough hot dogs. (laughs) That might be my favorite dissonant moment of 2023 like horrible clash between dialogue and music intentionally so oh you know i have been thinking about this ever since i knew we were going to talk about this on the podcast i the the listeners have heard the music <laughs> it's going in so to be Look. clear we're talking todd haynes's new film may december may december this is a film you are like over the moon oh. for. You you were like over the moon for on arrival. <laughs> Remember when it started and I levitated in theater? We saw it together. <laughs> yes, I think I came at least six inches out of my seat just at the get-go. It is a film that my boyfriend, we walked out and he said, oh, like that movie is specifically engineered for Josh Ray. <laughs> Yeah, it is. You go first, because you like it a little less than me. I think you like it, not to speak for you, but... No, yeah, I liked it. It's grown on me a little bit. As with most things, talking with somebody who else is enthusiastic about something sometimes turns the corner on it. It's not necessarily my favorite Todd Haynes, but I can see exactly why you liked it. So, for those who don't know, this is a sort of true crime film kind of in the sense that it's a movie about the true crime industry in a sense Hmm. so julianne moore plays a woman who had when she was in her 30s she had a relationship with a seventh grader and went to prison for it had his baby and now she's like 60 years old and the kid is in his 30s and now they have a whole family resulting from this this union and they're kind of like ensconced there in savannah georgia trying to make the best of things 30 years later. And Natalie Portman plays an actress who just sort of shows up trying to, I get the impression that she's doing the, I'm going to embed myself with this family and learn about this woman from the inside out kind of thing. Because she is playing her in a film. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I wasn't clear about that. Yeah, so Natalie Portman's character, the actress that she's playing is playing Julianne Moore's character, I think in a feature film, it's implied that Natalie Portman's character is like a television actress mainly. And so this is like her first arty, independent, serious drama feature film that she's making. You know, I wish, I don't want to do a spoilery thing, but I wish we could. That's just the best ending of the year for me that just pulls the rug out from under you a couple of different times. So, what, yeah, what, I mean, one more the, just for me, meaning maybe my favorite closing line of the I will get the maybe my favorite closing line of the year. For so me. Oh, my one God. More, just for me. Well, it has another great closing line with Julianne Moore, which is she says, What did she say? I'm secure. Make sure you put that in it. 
Anyway, yeah. what's nobody who says they're secure? Nobody who is secure needs to say they're secure, right? I don't know. At that <laughs> moment, she sort of revealed how secure she really is. The the film is very funny. It is an ascetic comedy. It is transgressive as fuck. You know, it should kind of warn people that the, the true crime element at the heart of it, the Mary Kay Letourneau of it all, is mm-hmm. sort of it it trickles out throughout the the first acts of the film what really happened and it is a a part of the text but i think there are other things going on here to latch on to even when you want to resist the story where your second lead is a pedophile or Mm -hmm. you know I mean, we can talk, we don't want to talk about, you know, reformation and and the criminal justice system. And and I think the film is really interested in like all of Hayne's work in identity and all of the sort of nebulous parts that are supposed to make up one's identity. Mm -hmm. And in this way, this one to me is a bit, more nihilistic uh, than any of his other films, or at least his films since Safe, in that it says there is no identity. It's a very Nietzschean thing, I guess. And that people ultimately are unknowable. And trying to investigate people, you will fail every time. It's It's a movie of hollow men and women. Exactly, exactly. And for some characters in it, that is a tragedy and very moving. For for the two leads, it's it's a power play the entire time. And of course, you know, you look at the poster and you see these two great actresses sort of silhouetting each other or, you know, merging into each other, as it were. And it recalls Persona, Mulholland Drive, the great Persona swap movies. And this one is not as surreal as those films can be, but it's all there because it is about performance. And gradually, Natalie Portman, her character starts to take on characteristics as she is not only researching this person, she's infiltrating her life Mm -hmm. and her memories by even going to you know, the scene of the crime in one of the just, that's the moment in the back of the pet store yeah. that I knew I'm fully on board forever. And I mean, and what's crazy about that is that like from a sort of serious, quote unquote, serious actor standpoint, a lot of the things that she's doing on paper just look like typical highfalutin actor due diligence stuff she's visiting the locations he's talking to the people who knew gracie she's talking to the family and trying to understand what makes her tick but how she goes about doing it and natalie portman's tone and body language and everything about how she does it suggests something weirdly sociopathic about it i don't know and that's because it's revealed to us we get that insight to whereas those other people do not and there's a moment where she's interviewing Gracie's lawyer, Julian Moore's lawyer. Mm-hmm. And he says, you remind me so much of Gracie. It doesn't look like there's a mean bone in your body. And she just smiles and is like, really? Thank you. 
And as we find out, that is <laughs> not true. Not so, true for um, either of them. It's it's a bad read on Gracie and it's a bad read on her too. <laughs> I think it, this film is just incredibly rich. Uh, I've seen it twice now. I can't wait to watch it again. Probably again and again and again. It isn't necessarily a, a, an easy watch. It can be very uncomfortable. But mm. if you're someone like me who kind of is thrilled on the uncomfortable or in those uncomfortable spaces, some of the things that occur, I mean, it really is quite transgressive to dress up what's for Todd Haynes, who's a genre deconstructionist, you know, is kind of his thing people pigeonhole him in. And it's certainly true. He's doing like a lifetime film. A bit of a hothouse drama. <laughs> kind of. It's in Savannah, right? So yeah. My friend Julian, shout out Julian, said it's like safe, but with, and I completed the thought for him, serial mom. It likely is my favorite film of the year so far. Wow. And, and wow. it, yeah, it's, it not only with its surface pleasures, exactly what I need and want out of a Josh Ray movie, but everything Haynes is concerned with is is also here. And it's a gorgeous looking movie for a movie that is like completely beige and sundresses. <laughs> It's yeah. it's very it's very upper middle class Savannah, which which means that it's like tastefully tasteless interiors, a lot of it. Yeah, and that's where that the safe comes in of it all. You think of Julia Moore's character in safe and her getting mad that the couch is gray instead of beige or whatever it is. <laughs> it's the sterile surfaces that we try to cover up ourselves with. Yeah, yeah I, I, I liked it a lot too. Hearing you talk about it enthusiastically is, is infectious. So I, I I give you that. I do want to point out like the two, the, our two lead actresses are sort of getting all the attention, but Charles Melton, who plays oh the much younger son, much younger uh, husband. Uh, I say, huh? uh, no, I was going to say he's having, a, he has a conversation with his son, the mm -hmm. young, the younger. So they have three kids together, an older girl, and then a, a girl and a boy twins. And Charles Melton character Joe has this conversation with his son, who's graduating from high school around the, the same weekend. Yeah, it's just like completely heartbreaking to mm. this, this. And but it's also funny because he's trying to relate to this this kid who's like only you know fourteen years his junior, and they're trying to share some weed, and Dad isn't doing too well with it. And so like, but that juxtaposition that's like the Haynes thing to me is that here we have this very earnest heartbreaking conversation between a father and son and then juxtaposed against the most ridiculous <laughs> we're odd of hot dogs melodramatic shit you can imagine it must be his most enjoyable film at some level um which is kind of surprising a lot of people like to call him cold and clinical no. and you know carol even the film that is the most moving thing to me yeah. was cold and clinical. Carol um, was cold. What movie? And I got a I kick. Out of, I always get a kick out of his Bob Dylan film too. Oh yeah, a lot of fun. I mean, he he's someone who's having so much fun. And hey, guess what? He can be smart at the same time too. So um, I would recommend it to everyone. It's it is showing theatrically, but Netflix 
I this can understand. Is a movie I think a lot of people will respond to. They will watch on Netflix, and mm-hmm. the internet is going to blow up. Maybe only on gay Twitter and film Twitter, <laughs> but and there's a Venn diagram that heavy overlap. Oh yeah, there. <laughs> film Twitter is gonna just explode. Yeah, I think I think the thinking is that if you just put Netflix, if Netflix puts a banner with those two actresses on it, they're gonna get a lot of people clicking on that mm-hmm. who would not willfully go out to a Todd Haynes theatrical film. Sure. I think it's their turn. Sure. Well, and that's my thing too, is that, you know, I when I saw it again, I saw it with an audience. Uh, they were they were having a hoot with it. And it's not, not everyone's going to respond the same way because of the content within it and the places it, it twists and turns into. But, you know, I guess the movie star is dead. That's where I end up with all that. Whatever. Movie stars are dead. No, they're not dead. Let's go to Emma Stone in uh, Poor Thing. The New York of Slanthimos. Another fucking wild ass movie. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I didn't know what I didn't know what to expect going to this. And I'm a huge Yorgos fan going back to Alps and Dogtooth. So I've seen almost all his films, I think. And this is not what I would call a typical Yorgos film. No, I mean, it has a lot of like May, December, and Todd Haynes, it has a lot of his sort of similar interests, Mm -hmm. but a different spin on it, and the scale is certainly completely different. I mean, it it resembled, to me, like a historical epic. Yeah, Um, it's a a picaresque, or however you want to put it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's Emma Stone is the lead of it, and she plays Bella Baxter, a woman who has been reanimated, as it turns out, by a what you I guess would call a mad scientist played by Willem Dafoe, who also his face has been figured and reconstructed, and they're outcasts of from society. And certainly the way that he found Bella, he wants to hide her away because he's he's put her unborn baby's brain into her head and this is where a lot of the old lanthimos comes in a lot of play on language a lot of uh importance with language as this person develops uh that skill and uh, she as all humans do a lot of humans let me take that back uh, discovers her genitals this movie is has a lot of sex in it. It is this very, movie, very I was movie. not prepared for 20 to 25 Emma Stone sex scenes yeah. per for I, two hours. Yeah, I remember people talking about it and getting little shots from the trailer we've all seen 5,000 times. But yeah, I kind of forgot that it was, you know, he always has a, a great way of like centralizing and locating what fuels people. Mm-hmm. But he always goes about it in the most, <laughs> I'm going to say convoluted. I'm going to say that. And I don't mean that negatively because generally I I love all of his films. I think this one is the one I probably like the least and I'm still pretty positive about it. But mm-hmm. even through all of his strangeness, through all of his kind of surreality, he does locate a great center of this person that he that Willem Dafoe's character has created and well as she's kind of quote-unquote 
growing up, she wants to go on her great sojourn and and and, and yeah, her rum springer. <laughs> I guess. I mean, there's so many things that are fascinating about some. I have not read the book by Alcider Gray. Apparently, my understanding is that the plot is similar, but it takes a lot of liberties with setting and style. This is very much Yorgos playing in the heightened, surreal universe of like Jean-Pierre Junot and Terry Gilliam and to extent Francis Ford Coppola. You know, I kept thinking, again, I kept thinking of like Adventures of Baron Munchausen in terms of like this, the visual style of it. It takes place ostensibly in the late 19th century in in a couple different locations, London, Paris. Yeah. But it's but there's so, some it's a like it's a future steampunk lean. Yeah, there's like ste- sci-fi, and... fantasy, steampunk nonsense sprinkled in. But all in the in the margins of things. Don't don't let us calling this steampunk deter you from seeing it. Those no, I mean don't respond to that. I mean, I think it does bear it's so outlandish in terms of production design. I do think it, it bears telling people this is not a quote unquote historical epic in the usual sense. It's a it's a heightened reality, it's a fairy tale fairy book reality mm-hmm. but there's interest fascinating things going on about gender and sexuality and society and like in some ways bella sort of scans as a as a creature without any self-consciousness or shame and and sort of it's almost like yorgos is imagining in the same way he likes creating these sort of artificial realities like he did in dog tooth like he did in, in a sense in killing the sacred deer just to, almost like he's testing sociological ideas and in this case he's taking this person who has absolutely no shame who's growing sort of at a times 10 rate from infancy to adult to fully realized adulthood in the space of a very short amount of time and he's imagining how victorian society at large would react and how the people around her would react if we drop this person in in, within in an adult body into this time and place and what sort of he's watching things collide and watching mm-hmm. how she develops, how she sort of goes through all the stages of adolescence and young adulthood in the space of what presumably is a few weeks or months. Um, For me, what's most interesting is the way she she develops the shame, the way she develops what Lanthimos seems to believe are things that are born of, of nurturing, of our human race functioning as a society and that are not necessarily innate to the human animal. Which I think and says just, a lot about him, right? He seems to postulate that sentimentalism is not an inherent part of human humanity and we have to learn no. it. Right, yeah. <laughs> like we learn love. Yeah. And these, yeah, there's a lot of big ideas in this. It's similar to the kind of world that he created with the lobster in just that. Yeah. With boiling human experience down to these these few ideas and trying to break apart what the ideas are and how they function in a a society of people. And I'm not going to say our society because certainly the lobster doesn't really mirror, you know, we can't turn into animals yet. No, but this is the function of science fiction and fantasy to an extent, right? It's just create to create alternate settings to explore real ideas that affect our world. And I think this film, I mean, I think it's a film that's very bizarre. Let's put it that way. A lot of people are not going to know what to think of it. But I do think that there's a lot of ways to come at it. If you were like a production design, art direction aficionado, this movie is going to be like crack. 
if you love Emma Stone, I've never really been particularly sold on Emma Stone as a great actress, a eh? but this movie kind of started me thinking about her for the first time. Is it real? She is the, the thing she kind does of monumental in this. Yeah, the thing she does in this movie, especially just watching her modulate the way she speaks over the course of two hours, is sort of fascinating. Without it feeling very studied, rehearsed, or anything, it feels very animalistic, very, mm-hmm. very like it's coming from in her. It, it doesn't feel like a performance, like you can see the wheels turning at all. In fact, I, I, what I love about it is you don't see wheels turning. Yeah. <laughs> Just so she's, horny. She, there's this kind of an affectlessness to, be, to Bella that I guess rings true if you know that she's a reanimated fetus corpse. <laughs> She's some kind of, I don't know how to describe her. She's some kind of Euroboros of Frankenstein monster. I don't even yeah. know how to. Well, there's a lot of Frankenstein in it too. Yeah. Shelly in there. Yeah. It's, it is really wild. I thought, I thought the second half really spun its wheels a bit. I would like to see it again with a, a, a big audience to see how people react to it because it is also very funny too. Like, all of Lanthimos. I mean, his earlier stuff is very stealthily funny. Dogtooth, if anyone laughs out loud during that, you'd probably look at him like, are you good? I laugh. I've laughed during Dogtooth. I've seen Dogtooth like Hilarious. three or four times. It's, it's awesome. so good. So funny. You um, have to but... laugh, but you also have to kind of go, ooh, during that mm-hmm. one scene near the end. <laughs> Jesus. I don't want to think about that. But yeah, definite two recommendations. Hey, Good movies. Good movies coming. Good movie. Can we talk more? Like, can we talk about another science fiction, pseudo science fiction film? Is this going to be about Hunger Games? Is this going to be about Hunger Games? No. I did kind of like that. (laughs) No. No, let's move on. Let's get into our next miniseries. Mm. The Gems of 2023. Hey, this is the third, like, Gems of whatever year that we've done. Yeah. Yeah, two years we're this, doing it. We're this doing silly it. podcast has been going crazy yeah too silly it is andrew's pick called they clone tyrone what kind of shit is this like i'm in the twilight zone now. don't let the back door hit you uh, we gotta we gotta go i don't know what that was but that wasn't me somebody is on us. <laughs> we are final mini series of the year. Gems of 2023. Things that we think are underseen or underrated. I forgot that used to be a part of this podcast that we used to underseen, underrated, whatever. Big on Tyrone. It's Andrew's pick. Netflix picture. Hey, did this show? Locally, anywhere? I don't think Netflix gave it a theatrical release. I think it was Jesus straight to Christ. streaming. Yeah. Um. So here we are towards the end of November. We're starting to think about the end of the year. We're trying to catch up with everything. Mm-hmm. And we are doing this miniseries where we're looking back at the year and making recommendations for people to see. And you have picked Jewel Taylor's de- debut feature, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was trying to see, like, he's made a few shorts, um, has some writing credits on that terrible fucking Space Jam reboot. <laughs> Jesus, did you ever watch that? No, I thankfully I didn't. 
He also wrote I, Creed Creed 2, so it's a very mixed bag. <laughs> right, yeah. I didn't look to see who else has writing credits on Space Jam and New Legacy, but I'm sure it was written by committee or Algae Rhythm. That is a joke <laughs> for people who have seen it. Anyway, uh, Andrew, why'd you pick They Clone Tyrone? So, so I didn't know much of anything about this film. I caught it on Netflix, I think, opening weekend or maybe the week after. This was like released the same weekend as Barbenheimer. So ah. I think it got sort of lost. So one of the reasons I picked it is just it's a really it was a really excellent piece of counter programming from that weekend that I remembered. And I think it pretty much flew under everybody's radar by virtue of being sort of lost in the shuffle of two major uh, releases that had a lot of hype associated with them. I also think it's sort of a great so we do rag on Netflix a little bit here, but I do think it's a good streaming film and by that i mean it's a film that makes good use of the streaming medium i think it this has the sort of thing where the title and the banner with the actors and on it would like make somebody go what the heck is this i need to find right. out what the, what yeah. this movie is so yeah this is the directorial debut feature debut of jewel taylor who also wrote it this film was floating around in Hollywood for a few years, is my understanding. It was a blacklist sort of identified as a very promising but still unproduced screenplay that had been floating around, I think, since like 2018, 2019, something like that. Finally, Greenlit and with Taylor directing, I want to say that Brian Tyree Henry was originally supposed to be the lead character, which I can't see at all. Having seen it now a couple of times, I can't really see it. The lead in this film was John Boyega, who I feel like is really excellent in it and is sort of essential to um, why it works for me at all. Notes to other British actors, study John Boyega in this movie and learn how to do an American accent properly because he is aces at it. He really is. Yeah, he's <laughs> not many British. At a lot of things, right? <laughs> yeah, but like not many British people, like respected British thespians who have like, Decades more experienced than John can't do it at the level that he does it. I don't know why that is. He's just really good at it. So study, please study him, Benedict Cumberbatch. Did I say that out loud? Oh, sorry. The power of the dog. Power uh, of the dog. So yeah, and I was sort of immediately taken by it. It hits a lot of my, you know, while I was watching it, let's just say I was sitting there ticking off the influences in my brain about other movies that I loved that this is not even stealing from or homaging, but just feels like it's in that same plane of speculative fiction, satire fiction, the things, other things that I love. There's some people under the stairs in there. There's some cabin mm -hmm. in the woods, the prisoner, clockwork orange, Westworld. There's a little bit of us, Jordan Peele's us in there. A little sorry to bother you, Boots Riley. Get so like, yeah. yeah, there's, there's so many things sort of floating around in the mix with this movie. I sort of was maybe primed to like it. So let me see if I can do a plot description. <laughs> so we've got John Boyega playing Fontaine, who is a drug dealer in an unnamed, predominantly black, neighborhood no and it has a name it's called the Glen, but we don't know what well, city right so we don't know if it's like a suburb of a major city if it's like in uh, less populated areas and we've also got tiana Par paris who 
plays Yo-Yo, a sex worker, very charming sex worker, a very funny and witty and sharp sex worker who is attempting to leave her pimp, Slick Charles, played by Jamie Foxx, while outside a motel room trying to get some money from Slick, someone gets revenge on Fontaine by shooting him six times. But then we get a Groundhog Day effect mm-hmm. to where Fontaine wakes up and is kind of like, goes about his day, starts <laughs> going, you know, goes to the convenience store he always frequents, he frequents, and then he runs into Slick and Yo-Yo again. And they're like, what the fuck? You were shot six times. What is happening? I am now spiraling in an existential crisis. So mm-hmm. that leads them to start looking at little things that are happening in their community. And what they find is an underground bunker. This is sort of where your cabin in the woods comes from, right? Mm-hmm. Underground bunker where they find Fontaine's bullet-ridden dead body. What the fuck is going on here? There's also spiked fried chicken. There is a new genre or artist of music that seems to have a weird effect on them. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of little things happening in their community, the Glen, that amount to what they think is a conspiracy. And they are right. I mean, we're going to spoil the thing. Essentially, what's happening is, you know, it's, it is sort of the, like, the us and the get out thing. One of the problems I have with get out is it's, it plays like a metaphor, but is very literal about Mm -hmm. what it's dealing in, Mm -hmm. which is fine because it doesn't need to be a metaphor because it's, the idea of it is so powerful anyway, where things like the sunken place become like something they talk about, something you mm-hmm. talk about in your life. It's like you're putting an idea words to an idea that's a common experience. Us is, you know, to some people, opinion of it to the detriment of the film, I think it's a masterpiece, is a little bit more open-ended <laughs> in its well, world I think- building. I think it's, and I I have come to view this as a good thing. I think at the time, I definitely thought of it as a negative compared to sort of the, the laser cut pre- precision of Get Out. But Us is about a lot of things. And I think you can say the same thing about They Clone Tyrone. It's trying to juggle a lot of notional balls all at once. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of a lot of notional balls. That's such a fun phrase to say. I mean, essentially what we find out is that this is, is a project that has been happening decades in the making Mm -hmm. where they are replacing choice people in the communities in order to sort of anesthetize the entire community i mean it's mind control i think i think the thing that it helps to keep in mind here is that there is a level on which this the plot makes a kind of sense but i also think like us if you start thinking about like with us, if you start thinking about it, does the plane with the tethered really make any fucking sense? Not really. Yeah, I'd see. I'm so unconcerned with all that. It happens, and I, yeah, uh, yeah. I think it, it's the the kind of values of it, the the visual and tonal values of it mean so much mm-hmm. that if you want to pick apart the little pieces of it, 
you're you're going to unravel what's magic about it and i don't care to do that like it's not a part of the experience for me mm -hmm. this didn't have that kind of magic experience for me mm -hmm. i think it was i want to dig into something you said and that it is tailored for the streaming experience because that was to me a negative i could see distinct chapter breaks where this thing could have played like a six-part limited series if you start stuffing it with more or three-part or three-part do the oh, British yeah thing. I mean you could very easily chop it up right now because it the the screenplay has these crescendos that feel episodic uh, to me in a very streaming era way to whereas you know it just it it's that kind of binging quality to it like it gives you every episode gives you the crescendo that is to a, a cliffhanger and of course you want to just keep watching the entire thing yeah that's i can see that yeah that's so fair to, yeah to me it's sort that started to take me out of it by halfway through it there are there were so many other things that are quite good about it particularly john boyega's performance mm-hmm He's so good because he he fits in the tone of this. And the, the tone is a, a little less acidic, sardonic than Sorry to Bother You, a mm -hmm. little bit more heightened than like Get Out. Mm -hmm. Jamie Foxx and Tiana Paris are, are like <laughs> the comedic relief. Yeah. Uh, and, she, and Jamie Foxx is really good in that. I do want to say that I feel like he, to me, it feels like he hasn't, been having fun the way he's having fun in this movie in a long long time this feels like sort of old school comedic jamie fox making a, a resurgence for me but you're right in that boyega's he's almost playing uh, a character who doesn't know they're in a black comedy satire sci-fi fantasy film like he he's he's playing the type and works on a couple different like there's almost a meta thing going on here right where fontaine has been placed into the glen and they keep making clones of Fontaine if he dies because they recognize that this sort of typecast drug dealer heavy is an important role in this universe. And But Boyega is playing him as a guy on two levels. One is a guy who doesn't maybe doesn't realize that he's in a sci-fi, a satirical sci-fi comedy, but also playing the existential crisis that he goes through eventually very realistically he's not, he's not playing like you say in the comedic register that tiona paris and jamie fox are he's playing it almost totally straight which is really fat which could be seen as maybe the blandest choice but ends up being a fascinating choice in the most and playing to boyega's strength i think your eyes follow him mm -hmm. to where is you know tiana paris and and jamie fox are they're certainly not, their characters are not aware up to a point that they're in a satirical black comedy, but they are more playing the like stereotype mm -hmm. and they're playing it up. They're kind of hamming it up. And the, the film gets to where it, it has a point about that in that these people have been brainwashed and planted and like, you know, they're born of different circumstances than what they just immediately see. But it kind of like John Boyega is very kind of 
studied, slow rhythms. He's just a fascinating person to watch. My eyes just always want to see Mm. what he's up to. And he's, you know, he's played a more comic relief character. You think about Force Awakens and his his role in that. I mean, he's pretty funny in that. And he's not this sort of like po-face figure that he is in this film. But if you have if you've been following his British career, if you watched, for example, his performance in the Small Axe episode, Red, White, and Blue, that he's absolutely Ooh, spectacular in. So good. You know he has this, these chops in him. But yeah, it, it's a fascinating performance. I'm really glad that, you know, Taylor's the kind of, you know, it, fe- it feels like a first film. In the same way that Star to Bother You felt like a first film. He's trying to cram yeah. out a lot. He's trying to prove himself. But I can see a different kind of director sort of not letting Boyega take it in that maybe straight-faced, po-faced direction. And so I appreciate that aspect of it. It does make sort of the the existential crisis that Fontaine eventually has almost like a complete breakdown at a certain point between Acts 2 and 3 really fascinating to watch. It makes the moments of tenderness that he shares of like one of the neighborhood kids feel like something... At that point in the story, we believe, we understand that Fontaine is himself a form of control on the system that's going yeah. on inside this community. And so that we get to watch these like touches of authentic- authenticity in his relationships with the community, with the guy at the corner store, with the kid who comes to a stoop. Like those moments speak to that there is maybe somebody inside there, inside this clone trying, there's a human being who's making connections that have nothing to do with the quote-unquote system, the plan, the conspiracy that's happening. And that, to me, just makes it all the more effective. Can we break down the quote-unquote twist at the climax where you discover that he's, at this point, third-generation clone of the person who's actually masterminding all of this? Well, not all of it, to be clear. There's an important distinction. So there's an important, yeah, there's an important distinction to make, which is that, so we, Giant Boyega is sort of a, it's not just a dual role, not just a triple role, it's like a multi-role, but the key character that he ends up playing at the end is, I don't think he even has a name. I think he's just the unnamed geneticist. Chester is the name of his like straight-laced clone, who's like the enforcer. But I'm not sure he even has a name. But anyway, it's John Boyega under like a bunch of old age makeup playing an elderly geneticist who has been working for the program. And I think it's an important distinction to make. We get these third act revelations, as you say, that his character, this geneticist, has been working for the program and helped them develop the cloning technology that has been used in this community and in communities all over America as a part of this larger government project of which Kiefer Sutherland sort of plays the representative of that project in the Glen. And as he says, we all have bosses up the chain that we have to run. I'm putting a pen in Kiefer Sutherland on our board. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. And as the geneticist explains in his sort of villain monologue, he has sort of piggybacked his genetic program on top of this larger mind control conspiracy that he's using this as a way to get what he wants, which is to engineer literally engineer the blackness out of black america over the course of generations and there's a there's a really brutal line he has the effect of assimilation is prefer, pref, preferable to extermination 
which is just a horribly, horribly mm. cynical, right. cynical, self-loathing line. But yeah, that's my take on it. That he, he does seem to explain that he's almost running his little, not necessarily a side project, but he's piggybacking on this the, the funding and resources and freedom to act that he's been garnered by this larger conspiracy. Yeah, he's like the brains, the the brains that have been co-opted for more nefarious reasons. He's made the yeah. deal. He even says, I've made a deal with the devil, and I'm okay with that. And I don't think I've thought hard enough about this in order to make the point I think I want to make. Like, what do you think the point is? I mean, the point is assimilation. Is that better than dead? And sort of agency ownership in the black community i just sort of like sorry to bother you which would kind of explain its its ideas to you even almost almost to their detriment to to me being very annoyed i think you you like that movie a lot more yeah how do you think all of that works in here it does develop nicely and by the time that the chest or is his name Chester? I looked at the letterbox. He's billed as Fontaine, Chester, and Tyrone, which we yeah, can get to those the are, ultimate ending. Those are three right. different they're characters. Three they're, different not characters. The gene- they're not the geneticist. I just so call him the geneticist. the geneticist and mm-hmm. his project being co-opted is the point that sort of stereotypes that they want to perpetuate a net negative in this culture for the filmmakers. I think so. I mean, again, remember the original goal of the project as, and you, you mentioned Kiefer Sutherland, as Kiefer Sutherland's character articulates, the ultimate goal of the project is sort of pacification. It's keeping racial tensions and general civil unrest in a larger sense under control in America, to keeping everything nice and even all the time. And part of that involves specifically addressing, you know, he intimates that it's part of the sort of the original sin of America that, you know, backing it all the way up to slavery and whatnot, that that this is an original sin that we've never been able to, quote unquote, solve. And therefore, the government's sort of band-aid solution is this pacification program through mind, through various mind control and social control. And yeah. that the that the cloned individuals like Slick Charles and Fontaine in this community serve a purpose to keeping it sort of everybody on track. And that's where I bring up the Westworld thing, if we, particularly as it's salient to um, Westworld season one about the idea of loops, the idea of people having behaviors that they sort of are ingrained to take over and over again. And the idea that the trying to draw the distinction between programming in a person and programming in a machine, is there a distinction? Is it even really programming? I don't think it's a film that's like dealing with hard sci-fi concepts in a sense, no. but it is playing with ideas with those same ideas, I think. But yeah, like their view, it's touchy, right? Because this is a film that articulates and the, and the filmmaker has been very upfront about this, that he has a very ambivalent feeling about some of these ideas. The idea that, you know, racially loaded, but culturally important markers, like for example, the corner fried chick- chicken shack in an African-American neighborhood. It, it is important. It's an a point of pride, but also there's like negative cultural associations with it from racial stereotypes. And in this movie, fried chicken is being used as a means for white America to control black America. Right. So he clearly feels some ambiguity about that. And it, and you can see it in all the little different things. We see some specific products in the film, but 
it's interesting that if you look at the back, this is a this is a production design bonanza film. If you look at the mm -hmm. background, um, there are certain products that come up over and over again. The malt liquor brand, the menthol cigarette brand. They don't there are, then there are things that are explicitly tied to the mind control, like the hair relaxer, hair, hair relaxer product, the grape drink <laughs> that is that that is also used in the churches. And in that in itself is kind of a hornet's nest, right? Like is the black church in these communities a place for joy, a place for independence and exuberance, or is it a place for subtler means of social and cultural control? I don't I think the film is ambivalent about that in the same way that the filmmaker is. And I think that's okay. To me, it it, yeah. it just scans as we're going to use all of these cultural signifiers as a means to sort of tendril our way into this community. There's a there's a different, slightly different version of this film that's maybe more invested in those ideas beyond the pleasures of sort of a sci-fi comedy, fantasy yeah. comedy, which I think, for my money, one of the reasons I like this one is I feel like it does a good job of balancing that. But I can definitely see another, another version of it that's more of a thinking man's uh, satire, social critique, or whatever, what have you. More Putney's will than sort of Scooby-Doo gang kind of thing. And but there is a lot of this that is like just surface level. And I talked surface level. That's not me saying negative about yeah. things. But I think um, there there are details like to me that were to me that feel like a black authorship. So, for example, the hair relaxer, as you say, is just sort of thrown in as a thing because there is this contentious idea of good hair and bad hair and the relationship of the black community to hair to whiteness ha to yeah. hair product hair products and whiteness and beauty standards. All that stuff kind of just comes in. You just name check it, and you've already brought you bring in those things. But what feels like a black note to me is the fact that. The white conspiracy never thinks that maybe Yo-Yo might be wearing a wig, which is a very black woman <laughs> thing to do, right? And that gets her out of the horrible situation that that she manages to sort of cunning her way through that by their, them not understanding that a lot of women wear wigs. Well, and that's another, to me, while watching it, I was thinking it was a negative and then turned out to be quite the positive for it they very easily uncover this conspiracy. <laughs> right. And all that, at first I'm like, I'm playing cinema sins and I'm like, they wouldn't find that that easy. Mm. No, they would have cameras in there. No. And then I realized they are the idiots. <laughs> right. The conspiracy That's is full the, of idiots. Yeah. The, the conspiracy is made of fucking idiots who do not understand black culture who do not understand the individuals that they think they're playing like marionette. So it is smart in that it, it does sort of undo the things that it thinks it, and their mind you control think is it's not, doing. And their mind control is not subtle. You know, it's not, <laughs> no, it's not it's, sophisticated. It's not very effect, effective either. Yeah, but it's not sophisticated for the chess social, you know, manipulation. It's, Let's put some laughing gas powder in the fried chicken. <laughs> like it's literally that dumb. Yeah. You know, the let's put something in the grape drink to make people a little more accepting of authority. Like it it's not high level and the ridiculousness of the avenues of control. Maybe that's why I was thinking of the prisoner. Like there's an element of the of the absurdity of the means of control is sort of part of the humor and part of the absurdity of the situation. 
I do want to say, though, that the one of the things I think this film has over Sorry to Bother You is that there's a great third act turn, which I really responded a lot to. And like, I think you're right in that there may be some some episodic breakpoints, obvious breakpoints in here. I do think maybe the movie is like maybe 10 minutes too long, could be tightened up a little bit, especially in the third act. But I do think there's a great point where after Fontaine, Yo-Yo, and Slick Charles find the conspiracy, they go down underground in disguise, see everything, basically learn everything, except the final reveal about the geneticist. They come back up through a strip club. Kiefer Sutherland has a big villain monologue, catches them, has a big villain monologue, where he explains everything, and then lets them go. Fontaine sort of goes back to his life, and there's this great sequence that is all about Fontaine trying to adjust that he has to sort of live with this knowledge, that he can make a decision. Yo-Yo takes a completely different tack. The next morning, she's raring to go. She's like, okay, I've got a way in for us to get back down there. I've got a way for us to sort of topple this she's thing. She's doing cloak and dagger business. She's doing Nancy Drew. She talks yeah. about, they were talking repeatedly about Nancy Drew as being like her model when she was a little girl. And she's sort of still on that kick. Fontaine's just sort of taken a more pessimistic, nihilistic view of it. I can't really can resist anything. Then part- Kiefer Sutherland gives them a choice. It's either yeah. you die right now or live with this. Yeah. Which again, the logician in me is like, just fucking pop them. You have clones. But that's not <laughs> well, the film's point, right? Right. Continuity of identity, too. Just because right. you get killed. Let's let's not turn this into the prestige, right? Like just because your clone <laughs> oh, gets killed doesn't mean you live. Yeah, I definitely but- don't want to do that. How can I put this? For me, I found this very affecting and effective because it's it's doing something that I don't think that started to bother you ever quite grasped, pulled its claws around, which is the idea of once your eyes have been open to the horrors of modern society, whatever, however you want to, the horrors of late stage capitalism, the horrors of racism in America, once you've become woke, so to speak, how do you go back to living your life? How do you modulate your existence how do you proceed through the rituals that you know are part of a larger system? And this film feels like it grapples with that through Fontaine in a way that I haven't seen many other films in this sort of subgenre deal with. I thought it was really fascinating the way that he, it, it's how do you go back to living your life after your enlightenment, after, you're, after you've been made aware of the, everything that's wrong and rotten with the world? How do you participate in the world? Yet you continue to participate in society, as the meme says. So yeah, that's just something that I loved about it compared to a lot of other films that are still operating in the same register. Can can I can I put take the pen off the board? Yeah. Is Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland a bad actor? I do I not like him in this I movie. I don't think and so. And we just talked about the Lost Boys. <laughs> we just talked about the Lost Boys. I don't like him in that. I don't think he gets the register of these very specific worlds. He's in. Hmm. In this, it just feels like he's, oh, I have to do Jack Bauer gone bad. I don't. I, have I, I never. Sw- I have never seen Twenty Four, so I have no frame of reference for this. But I, I think he's a fine actor. I don't, don't, don't know if he's a generational talent or anything. But I, I've always oh, thought of him as a good. I've always thought of him as a good actor. I think the apple fell far from the tree. <laughs> we salute that's, you. That's just mean. That's just Mr. Mean. X. <laughs> That's his name. Speaking of conspiracies. Yeah, anyway. I, I, one thing I want to talk about is how this film looks. Yeah, is, yeah. Mm, mm, so when, when I the, said streaming, a good use of the streaming medium, one of the things I meant by that is that 
this is a film that for the first time shows and throws in sharp relief how that every other digitally shot film on these streaming platforms doesn't have to look like shit. <laughs> that you can make a digital film that's gorgeous, that uses color, that uses the 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 sort of squirmy grain of digital filmmaking to fine effect. So I don't know if you're ready to go down this rabbit hole with me. Okay. Are you are you prepared? It's not I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it above ground. Okay. May December also uh -huh. shot digitally. Mm -hmm. So the a great killer, looking film. Also a great looking film. The killer also shot digitally. Mm -hmm. These are films where we've reached a point where the digital can mimic film with grain. Mm -hmm. It is a stylistic choice because it recalls a, either a certain period, a look, it adds a kind of depth, a feel to the film. It's just a weird thing because they started touring 35 millimeter prints in May, December. And I was like, I thought it was shot digitally. So why would you do that? Anyway, this is neither here nor there, but it is just an interesting thing that digital has come so far that we need to throw a layer of, of grain on it. That is filmic grain. Digital grain is like blocky and gross and the blacks get inky and nasty. Well, it's like these squirmies. I don't know how to describe, I'll describe them. It, it looks like film grain to me. And there are uh, white specks throughout. Yes, there are cigarette, like cigarette burns. And, yeah, there are cigarette burns in the corner. And so all the hallmarks of it being on film it's pretty intentional, but it's it's so much cheaper to shoot digitally. And then it seems to be a kind of trend that's happening recently that mm -hmm. I'm just kind of interested in because I'm interested in those things and the aesthetics of film and like why we've gone so far into digital to just make it look like film that <laughs> is much preferred to me. Like it's a it's just a such a great look like it gives so much texture to everything and, and it's a this, colorful it's a colorful it's film the the first scene in the uh, motel parking lot mm -hmm. with that fuchsia that magenta light you know oh my god and then the green of like the parking lot lights just this like yeah magenta and green purple green it's so gorgeous but throughout the film like it just keeps finding really I would call them subtle ways of doing it, even though it was striking to me. It's it's not the like a Moldavar where you're looking like, yeah. in an apartment and everything's like red surrealist circles. You know, it's heightened naturalism to it that I I yeah. found really striking. And there's really excellent production design. I I yeah. think too. I guess what I meant by digital is that if if I said to you, streaming exclusive, director you've never heard of. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly film, what you mean. It looks they a lot of them look like ass. The, and yeah, this film, this the, film looks gorgeous. To this, yeah, there's a care to this that isn't present in I don't yeah. know what else to and so, and Todd Haynes, David Fincher, I think is a level up here. Like they, they can do whatever they want in terms of like <laughs> format and medium, but this has maybe like they can't though, not really anymore. But what I mean is that like this is the kind of film where they could have gotten away by making it as cheaply as possible and not caring how it looked. And it looks yeah. amazing. The production design is great. I sat there and I, I guiltily freeze-framed Yo-Yo's bedroom and studied it. She goes back to her grandma's house at her childhood home. And there's 
so many incredible details in her bedroom that like basically give you her whole character's history without having to ha have it stated explicitly. Yeah, it's her childhood bedroom and it, or, you know, I guess she's left some things from her childhood, but like all the posters on the wall mm -hmm. and her just perfectly organized Nancy Drew collection. And it, it does really tell you a lot about it. And uh, the choice of lip color, like uh, <laughs> this uh, teal Yoyo, lip. I told yeah. I told my wife, I was like, I'm sorry, I can't. I like John Boyega's a handsome man, but I can't stop looking at him as teal lipstick it's just drawing my eye every time i see her yeah like and those big boot, a... those big boots that she wears like those with the garters on them and her hair what... and yeah. everything about her is great costume like, it, 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 yeah it is very she's doing the thing they're making her the thing but she really lives in it well and carries it well and i don't think it's incidental that yo-yo is not a clone so the, we learned that slick charles and fontaine are clones yo-yo is not which makes it interesting that she's sort of the character with a we we learn about a childhood of big dreams and agency that was sort of derailed by the place that she lives in the third act really hinges on her using her agency too right she she sort of becomes the actor in all of it she takes the action because everyone Fontaine, else is like Fontaine existential crisis time. Yeah, and Fontaine, I mean, in both in terms of where she is in the plot too, Fontaine literally becomes the Trojan horse. He's not the, he's not yeah. the detective character. He's the Trojan horse. Yeah. Well, even though, you know, I had some reservations about it, I'm still just like, that is the kind of Netflix original yeah. that I'm glad that someone is throwing money at this filmmaker just kind of letting them do what they need to do i mean even though i'm talking about the netflix of it all it still feels born from a person and not yeah. by committee i mean space jam new legacy aside it makes me <laughs> excited to see i hope taylor gets like a, a bigger ticket to do whatever to do a films sort of on this um Indie films, but on a big scale with big, crazy ideas like this. I want to see more. I like seeing these kind of films. So I hope he gets the ticket to do whatever he wants next. Yeah, I'll look forward to it too. All right. Are we ready to recommend some things to the Academy? Okay, believe it or not, it's award season. <laughs> oh my God. How can this be? How can this be? Another rotation, another award season. We're don't, here. Don't ever do that accent again. Oh, I keep doing it. I'm so sorry. It's my, like, it's the drunk version of Jinx Monsoon's Judy Garland. So we'll keep, <laughs> yeah, it'll keep happening. But we wanted to get ahead of things and recommend a few personal picks bring to the Academy's attention because. You know, we have so many Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences members listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. so Who care so deeply about our opinions yeah, on these Yeah, matters. they're going to listen to this and be like, ah, I know I now must see that documentary <laughs> Joshua recommended. Sure, great. But at least y'all will enjoy uh, hopefully a few things to think about. Throw them on your list that you're doing. All right. I'm going to start us off and yeah. I'm going to talk about that documentary that Joshua recommended. I've actually talked about this documentary. It played 
true false last year yeah last year it's called gods of mexico Mm. and it is a tripartite of certain geographical areas in mexico one section plays very much like a very a meditative fly on the wall document of some workers drilling limestone but it's so fucking gorgeously done that has the rhythm and the tone and just the music of you know parts of 2001 the first 10 minutes of there will be blood it it just has this kind of gripping quality to it where it puts you in this suspenseful area where it's it's really just documenting these things of course it's gorgeous two three five widescreen the second part is portraiture of people in mexico but they're staged in certain ways where they they bring out certain qualities either from their background or their personality or what their current work is and then it moves and has a third chapter that's a little bit trickier that's kind of a combination and and has a, a real narrative to it i didn't know this film came out it's one i was hoping to put on my 10 best list last year i was on some website and i saw an ad for canopy advertising this and i was like wait that movie came out it did play in limited release in major cities large cities new york la and it's handled by oscilloscope so it's a film that is now available for folks to go out and seek. That's Gods of Mexico. It sounds um, like a definitive true-false kind of movie from the way you're describing it. It is, because it has an experimental bent. It does have the, the, the ideas of narrative and fiction, meeting and seeing what happens. As you and I both kind of respond to, it mm. is this ethnographic survey of things. I hate to feel like you also respond to those things I mean, to, no to i think with um there was a film i don't know if you saw it as well there was a film a few true falses ago that i really loved about uh, a tequila distillery in mexico and last it's year. part was that last Dos year st- uh, dos estaciones yeah that i was really fascinated with i guess it's loosely fiction but it's so invested in the spaces and landscape and process of like agave and manufacturing and so forth that it almost comes off like document like ethnographic documentary anthropological documentary loved it but a very sort of true falsy film absolutely either way yeah i hope people just check it out i don't know that it it has the scale or the distributor to be able to make it to like the the doc committee's shortlist Mm -hmm. i would hope so i i feel like if people see it they'd be either even if they don't respond to it in the way that I did, um, they'll certainly not be mad at me for uh, giving them an interesting time. All right. What's one of your picks? So I'm, I've got something that I think might actually be a Dark Horse candidate. I don't know. I don't have a good sense. I'm completely checked out of the awards, quote unquote, conversation. Oh, right baby, now, so. you know it's my sports. I'm checked right, so in. I will tell you. My please nominate the her right now is Sarah Flack for editing Priscilla, which I think she's a editor who's been around the block for a while. She worked with Soderbergh. She's done almost, I think she's cut almost all of Sofia Coppola's films, but the editing in Priscilla is just 
chef's kiss it's it's beautiful it's so integral to why the film works the flow of time the way that she puts together these spaces and objects not just the action with the actors in them but sometimes shots that don't have anybody at all in them and the way that she paces it just really essential editing in the best possible sort of art film art narrative art film way that i absolutely love you know editing as a category it tends to award most editing <laughs> a lot Biggest, of the time you know or, yeah. or or completely inexplicable side swipes like bohemian rhapsody but this is like a really great example of here's a, here's somebody who's never been honored by the academy as far as i can tell i think she has a bafta or something or she, she has an emmy i think uh, but she really needs to, she's been working for a long time and this is just sort of pinnacle craftsmanship. Definitely needs to be recognized, I think. I hate to say it. I feel like Priscilla is unfairly mm -hmm. going to be completely shut out of everything. Mm -hmm. Calling it now. Okay. Um, even though in like those tech technical categories, like editing, cinematography, certainly um, production design, costume, it's, it's, yeah, one of the best. Come on, open your eyes. Go see Priscilla, Academy <laughs> members who are listening. All right, I'm going to stick in the tech area, and I'm going. I am too. To... There's, I'm not doing any actors. Sorry, I have actors. I okay. have actors. I am going to talk about the cinematography of The Killer, mm. another film I believe that will be completely shut out. And uh, we've already sort of talked about it. It is this digital-ass film look to it, and then it has this sort of filmic grain, filmic death to it. The cinematography is done by Eric Messerschmidt. He also did Mank for Fincher. It's a David Fincher film, the color oh, okay. that we talked about in the last episode. I didn't know he was. I didn't know he was the Mank lens in as well. Yeah, so he's the one that did all that. I think this is much more successful and much more. It has a sort of placidity to it mm. that matches the the methodical nature of the subject. But th what's happening in front of you is often at great tension with those things. And that's what I think is so beautiful about it. Plus, it's a movie that it, it's a globetrotting movie. So mm. like you're looking at you know, beautiful tropical trees one moment, and then you're looking at London streets the next, and then you're in <laughs> like more rural areas in Florida and that just a great action sequence in there. But it's, this is someone who's worked with Fincher, uh, understands that Fincher has a very certain aesthetic he's looking for. And I think he did a great job of achieving it here. And making it just look fucking good. How do you make a you store it facility look visually sumptuous? I'm not sure how, but he manages to do it. Right. And I'm so tempted to give Fincher some of that credit because he's so meticulous. Well, at least that's how all the pieces would have it for us. Mm. But it, it's just a, a bang up job that will go unnoticed completely. And, and part of that, I think, is probably because of the genre and the scale of the films somewhat smaller than we're used to with Venture. All right, what's your next one? So I'm going to do a never in a million years chance for cinematography as well. For a foreign cinema, foreign film cinematography. Have you seen the film Godland yet? I have not. 
Okay. And I know I, I will before mm-hmm. the end of the year because it is required viewing. <laughs> it's an Icelandic film. I think I wrote about it at the take up. Mm-hmm. We, we showed it at Webster earlier this year here in St. Louis. This is a film by Hilmner Palmason, who also Icelandic filmmaker also made a good, very good sort of Nordic noir called A White White Day. Um, this is histor- histor- historical epic about a Lutheran Danish minister going to Iceland and trying to build a church in sort of this very remote rural Icelandic coastal town. It's like three hours long. <laughs> it's very slow. He doesn't even get to the town for like 90 minutes. It is very, very beautiful film. It's shot in very squarish one, you know, 1.33 to one. And it has these kind of rounded corners I don't know how to just dis- also describe it sort of old photo look to the entire the entire film is shot like that but it's just a gorgeous film it's not the only thing going for it but i feel like it's essential to the a lot of the film is about photography it's about sort of this sort of wet plate colloidal process photography the priest is an amateur photographer he loves to take photos of people he kind of fancies himself an ethnographer and loves taking pictures of the people and places that he visits and so much of the film is about imagery and about the staginess of ph- photography as an art form, particularly back then when you couldn't have people moving for five minutes while the plate is being exposed, versus the naturalism of just filming people in the modern day, just filming people going about their business. There's just there's so much going on in this film, and a lot of it comes down to just how how it looks and feels based on its visuals. There's some spectacular nature photography. There are like borderline avant-garde interludes of like lava bursting forth from the Icelandic volcanoes and scenes of time-lapse photography of skeletons decaying on the tundra and being covered uh, with snow. Say no more, King. <laughs> I get it. I'm yeah. going. Yeah. It's on this... Criterion channel right now. Janice yeah. is in side They distributed it. Yeah. Distributed. Yeah. So yeah, highly recommended film. No chance in hell that Maria von Hauswolf is the cinematographer. Sorry if I didn't say her name earlier. No chance in hell she's ever going to be nominated. But it's just it's the the one film where like the camera ness of it all. You know, so often we talk about we like the camera to be seamless. The camera ness is essential to what makes this film work. So highly recommended as a film in general and for its cinematography specifically. Well, my last one, I thought, yeah, I shouted out my friend Julian. You know, I told him after I watched Asteroid City for second, third time, Mm. I'm like, this thing, it's going all the way, baby. I don't think that's happening anymore. Yeah. I think that it has the potential to because of what that film is about. And it's about making art it's about building narratives it's also fucking it, it's so funny it's so like there's a million people in it like it, it, what the, why is it not gonna happen <laughs> i don't know whatever too early right that's that's the convention too early movies that come out in spring or summer don't show you much of a shot too early and if it were to have this grand budapest hotel effect it would need to make a lot more money which it did fine. It did fine. I feel like Grand Budapest, the the movies about movies thing aside, which the Oscars do like, I feel like if Grand Budapest didn't, wasn't like the big haul for Wes Anderson, this won't be. Does that make sense? I mean, Grand Budapest, yeah, but don't forget, Grand Budapest swept the first half of that Oscars ceremony. Grand Budapest got a lot. It didn't win the bigs, but it did win a lot. But if it didn't win the big thing, you're right. 
But I thought it just had the sentiment that people would respond to. It's about mm-hmm. acting, blah, 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 blah. So many reasons that I don't think Jeffrey Wright will be nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Mm. And I don't think Scarlett Johansson will be nominated for Best Supporting Actress. So, it, yes, I'm seeking in two. This mm. is my chance to talk about Asteroid City. I think it's a great film. I think you do too. I I yeah. love this movie sincerely. Top five. I, top five movie for me this year. I can't quite decide where I'm going to put it yet. Yeah. Something else we've talked about is number one. This is definitely number two. They might flip flop as I watch them both ad nauseum perpetually into eternity. <laughs> but- Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wright too is like, I feel like, and he's only... To only the past two movies that he's been involved with Anderson, he hasn't done any, had anything before French well, Dispatch, did he? Was he in Island? He's Dogs? really good. He's really been French Dispatch. Is he in Greenwood? No, he's not in Greenwood, but but I was going to say he's sort of a latecomer to the Anderson players, but he, he feels works. like he should have been there a long time before. His style, so well because he's he's able to do the deadpan thing, but also imbue it with so much life. Really, it's just one scene that I'm talking about. Yeah. Because elsewhere in the film, he's kind of just doing one-liners. But there's one scene where he recounts his entire life in under three <laughs> minutes. And it I'm just a puddle of tears without it seeming sentimental. It's just the ideas he's able to bring across with that. Scarlett Johansson playing an actor who's playing an actor who's acting depressed let's come on let's not even try to parse the the nesting doll layers in that in anybody's performance in this movie but johansson in particular yeah this is someone is she in iowa dogs look every i've been in a wes anderson movie it doesn't matter (laughs) but she is she the same could be said of of jeffrey wright that you could say of scarjo she's really nailing the register and she's really doing a lot of work with a very little and she's a movie star playing a movie star and it's so important that you get a movie star doing it because just like everyone in asteroid city you're watching her like you are looking right at her right and she's incredibly funny and, and, and incredibly moving i i think it's 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 one of her best. And I think she has a lot of great performances and a lot a lot of trash too. But I think it is she, it is really special. Johansson has really sort of grown into yes. like one of our great one of our great American actresses. And I don't think that's necessarily was a given. Even though she was a child and she's been performing for a long time, I don't necessarily think that was a given for a long time. But she's becoming Maybe one of our more interesting working actresses. So, yeah. All right. You got one more? One more. This is my, may, might actually be nominated, but I'm not sure. Daniel Pemberton's score for Across the Spider, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. He was not nominated for Into the Spider-Verse, which he also scored. But I feel like that film's animated, best animated feature win aside quote-unquote franchise of these two movies now sort of built up steam and i do think that his score for across spider-verse is working on an entirely different level i think into the spider-verse is mainly like people ask people to remember the music they mainly remember what's up danger they remember the songs 
Yeah. Um, more than they necessarily remember the score. This film, from the minute I saw it, I couldn't get the score out of my head. He's doing some incredible, I'm not a musical person, so I'm not good at explaining these concepts and ideas in real terminology, but he's doing this thing where he has like half a dozen different motifs for different characters and settings that rely on similar little flourishes of melody or style or rhythm. And he's repeating them over and over again to spectacular effect. There's a way in which, if you recall, we talked about Into the Spider-Verse earlier this year. If you recall, there's a very distinctive sound cue motif that the Prowler gets. It's this very mm -hmm. bassy rumble. Every character in Across the Spider-Verse has a cue like that associated with them. And sometimes it's done very subtly in the score. Sometimes it's right there in front. It's just an, it's incredible score in general, but I think it's a very specifically an incredible comic book score. In the same way that we, I can't freaking tell you any of the Marvel live action movie scores off the top of my head. I think the, the, the only one that sticks in mind is the one that won the Oscar that year, which was Black Panther. But yeah, do this any is like of them have music other than Black Panther because <laughs> in my head they're all <laughs> yeah, like this is the definition of great superhero scoring in my mind. Distinctive motifs used to incredible effect, motive, emotive music, good action scoring. Like it's 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 again, it's like the pinnacle of what I would consider sort of great animated action scoring for superheroes you can't do better than this i don't know how anybody could have done a better job with this but apparently he's gonna have to make a third one so we'll see it's a whole slate of recommendations mm. for everyone in particular our academy members <laughs> you don't exist D uh, hit me up if you do <laughs> so tell me what's up what's going on guys all right Every episode, we round out with one more thing. Hey, we just recommending stuff. And we have one more for you. Andrew, you go first. Okay, this is a film that I was sort of holding in my back pocket for a couple months now. When I was doing some research on an Exorcist presentation, I stumbled onto this film that I think is the closest to a precursor of The Exorcist that I could find which is an Italian film from 1963 by Brunello Rondi, who is probably most famous for Black Emmanuel, White Emmanuel. He did a lot of trashy Italian movies, a lot of caged heat movies. But this is a fascinating black and white religious horror film. I don't even know how to describe it. It doesn't really have any real supernatural elements depending on how you parse it, but there is a demon possession and an exorcism at the core of it. For me, it's it, it was sort of blindsided. I found I found it and the discovered it was screaming on Shutter and like watched it that same night. And it's spectacular. It's a four star film for me. It's up there with like it has very like strong Pasolini vibes. Gospel according to Saint Matthew and his Greek mythology films. Great like completely unhinged lead performance from the lead actress. Movie about witchcraft and the general like blinkered patriarchal nastiness of rural Italian Catholicism. Just just a cool movie all around that I've never heard of. Um, it's, it's such called... an Andrew movie, the way you're <laughs> describing it. But yeah. it's on my watch list. You, it's you, we the de started talking about it because we were talking about that very subject. Yeah, And I was like, oh, and you found that. And we're so excited about it. I'm and it has. Watch it. So if you've seen the extended slash director's cut, aka the version you've never seen of The Exorcist, 
It has the famous restored spider walk sequence. This has a spider walk in it. I cannot yeah. believe, I cannot yeah. believe that William Friedkin did not see this movie. So Friedkin, you fake, you phony. You <laughs> so stole anyway, the spider walk. The Demon, now streaming on Shutter, also found under the name Il Demonio, if you can't find it under the English title. Ooh. Very cool. You can find me at awyatt 76 at Letterbox, and you can find my writings on the take-up, at least starting back in January again. Very cool. And I'm Joshua Ray. Find me at Crispy Retina's uh, Instagram letterbox. Yeah, it's always changing. My one more thing is is a, a theft oh. of a one more thing that Andrew Wyatt recommended. Oh, okay. It is an HBO docuseries called Lady and the Dale. Oh, yeah. Why did I take so long? You know, even if it weren't kind of excitingly made and and the story itself take four hours to tell me the story please it is the story of a woman who um had production over a car called the dale which was supposedly a a three wheel car that would get 70 miles to the gallon and it is a story of of a trans woman who's undergoing the most extenuating circumstances. And it's it's such a great peek into more contemporary trans history than I ever expected it to be. And has these great, just great, like, I can't talk about the fucking news anchor. Who oh, yeah. No, we can. We know like, we can. But I don't know his name. Fucking murder him. Is it's, he still- it's Tucker Carlson's father. Doesn't that explain a lot? I right haven't. There? I do they say this and yes. I haven't watched the final episode. It's his I dad. am going, I am going to throw <laughs> I am on this podcast. I'm sorry no if I spoiled something. I thought that was earlier in the wonder. early in the series. No, yeah. it's fine because I, I would rather hurl something up here than to my television. Yeah. No, yeah. great, ser- okay. great series. We were talking earlier about episodic streaming television. That oh. is a miniseries that uses the the act break. The four, yes. it's a four episode series. It is spectacular use of the episodic nature of it. Each because of those four has a different such... emphasis. Different emphasis. Yeah. This the story dictates that there be four chapters, and there are four chapters, and each That's, one tackles I, a, I, tackles a subject. Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating. I like that HBO's. Kind of moving, it seems, at least in their their documentary films, moving away from, oh, it must be eight, or oh, it must be six, and letting the story dictate how long the thing is. Their great telemarketers was three episodes this year and packed in uh, quite a story in there. But this it also uses this this like cut cut out animation, uh, cut out about. animation. To, to great effect and and well, you know it does a great job kind of putting you in the time and place um mostly you know 60s and 70s los angeles but it's just a, a, a great portrait of a resilient woman who's also criminal also a trans woman <laughs> also a mother of many also just a, a terrible con 
and, and we inspiration. Contain, we all contain legions, right? Look, yeah, Liz Carmichael, the, we salute you. Liz, Liz Carmichael, BK do crimes. That's the <laughs> lesson there. No, I'm glad. I'm glad this is a full circle. One more thing. I'm yeah, glad we have at absolutely. least one of those. <laughs> I I just couldn't go without seconding your one more thing with my one more thing. All right, well, that's another episode in the can. You can find us at thetakeup.com, thetake-up.com. Also on social media, at thetakeupstl. All right, Andrew, confession time. Mm -hmm. I have not picked my gym of 2023. (laughs) You've got a lot more to pick from than I do, I think. So I'm sure you'll find it. I, I think I, like you, I think I'm going to stick to the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a couple of guests come on for this mini series too. And they have given me a little insight to what they're thinking about picking. So it's going to be an exciting time, if only judging from our last series like this. So I'm excited. Well, I guess you'll find out in a couple of weeks what my pick is. First, I'm going to think. Partners at Cinema St. Louis, you can find out about them at cinemastlouis.org. Social media from Kayla McCullough. Kayla McCullough. (laughs) Kayla, text me and let me know if if you're listening to this and you hear that. Our editor, Jessica Pierce, and our theme music by AMP. And, well, we'll see you in a couple weeks for a mystery movie mystery what he's picking he might just pick <laughs> May December so they can talk about it more. we're um, running out of time but you have plenty of time to pick around with the outro so sorry I'll cut it I'll cut it out I'll cut it out tighten, right. tighten it tighten it yeah <laughs> <laughs>